Hello everyone, this is Alex McMillan with the EdTech Lens. Today in our inaugural episode, we're with author David Gleason, who wrote, At What Cost? Defending Adolescent Development in Fiercely Competitive Schools. Welcome, Dr. Gleason. Thank you, Alex. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here with us at Chadwick International School in Songdo. So could you tell us a little bit about your book, At What Cost? Sure. Uh, I've been working in um, very competitive independent and international schools for the last 25 years. And over that time, I've noticed um, what I consider to be clinically significant trends uh, in how students have manifest their feelings of anxiety and depression. Back in the mid-90s, my observation was that one of the more severe ways that students would manifest anxiety and depression was in uh, the manifestation of eating disorders and how seemingly intractable those uh, were at that time. And after a while, when I thought that that was the more severe way of, of experiencing anxiety and depression, I encountered more and more students who were cutting themselves. Um, and I then realized that that was a more extreme, or to me anyway, it seemed like a more extreme manifestation of students trying to express um, indirectly their feelings of anxiety and depression. Until somewhere about 2004, 2005, I started to encounter many more students who were uh, expressing deliberate intents to uh, commit suicide. Um, and I've been clinically involved with many um, student suicide cases. So I kind of had the sense that students were pushing it. Um, and I had the sense, I had this fantasy um, that if I could somehow bring all the students together with whom I'd worked over the last 25 years and they hadn't aged yet, as if they were all still in their adolescent selves, I had the fantasy that they would say something like, how far do we have to push this before you adults realize how hard this is on us to be trying to do all that you adults are asking us to do in these ultra-competitive environments. So that's why I, I started to write this book. And the title itself comes from the fact that I've been in many, many meetings, um, usually with parents and with a, a student's advisor and like an academic dean at a school, and they're talking about the ways in which the student is struggling mightily in that school. Um, and I've frequently asked the question in those meetings, at what cost are we asking this particular student to stay at this school, recognizing that he or she is missing out on an otherwise healthy adolescent life because he or she is trying to meet what seem to be the insurmountable demands uh, imposed on him by uh, these competitive environments. Hmm. So to see if I understand what you are saying correctly, you're saying that after all of your, your career working as a psychologist and, and meeting various schools around the world, not just in the United States, but also in Asia, and have you, have you worked in other areas? As Europe well? and South America and South Africa so as well. Globally. Mm -hmm. And you have noticed that schools are increasingly competitive and that there is almost an outcry from the students saying, you know, we matter too, we're, we're suffering too, and you're almost speaking up in defense of the students, saying, at what cost are we pushing these students for uh, what schools or, or, or families might consider to be excellence? Uh, what cost to the student are we asking them for these achievements? Correct. Mm. 
So I would like to um, jump into a question from um, a colleague over at Keystone Academy named Eric Johnston. Um, and I think that this kind of goes uh, naturally with, with where we were just uh, uh, conversing. Eric says that um, he wonders why are so many schools pushing students in an unhealthy direction? Why is this a, a global trend in your opinion? Mm. Um, I think there's a dilemma that I point. I know there's a dilemma that I point out in the book um, that at the same time, uh, educators in these competitive schools, all of which are incredibly high quality schools, but the dilemma is that at the same time that they fully admit to wanting more than anything else to educate their students in healthy and safe and balanced ways and to work hard together to create. Uh, healthy school cultures and to meet students where they are um, at the same time that they admit to those commitments that they have these after all I think are why they went into teaching in the first place um, when asked further given the interview that I've used in my research they also admit to overscheduling their students and to assigning their students with too much homework and to expecting their students to act like adults and to think like adults before those students actually are adults. Um, and in that kind of way, they recognize that they're putting students at greater risk for these kinds of social and emotional and behavioral problems because of the unintended but still um, clear ways in which they are imposing um, over-pressured environments on their students. What's fascinating about this bind that everybody I've, I've interviewed around the world acknowledges is that when I ask them if they didn't over-schedule their students, if they didn't uh, expect their students to act and think like adults before they are adults, if they didn't uh, over-focus on the college admissions process, if they didn't assign all that homework, then they the adults fear that they would be seen as having lost their own sense of rigor. They, they would lose their reputation as being competitive schools that gets kids into selective colleges. Uh, they would pay a kind of price for themselves. So what, what emerges is that the adults in this book and at what cost fully recognize and acknowledge a kind of bind that they're in. Um, being caught between these two commitments, one to wanting to educate their kids in healthy, safe, and balanced ways, but at the same time wanting to protect their brand, wanting to um, maintain their jobs, maintain their reputation as competitive schools that get kids actually into selective colleges. That's an adult problem. Adults need to think about how to work that out, because if they don't, then they continue to impose uh, pressures on students who didn't sign up for this much pressure. Uh, they are trying to do what they're expected to do, but the problem is they're stuck within the adults' conflict, and the adults are unknowingly imposing way too much pressure on kids who, for the most part, are still very much still developing. Mm. Do you think that there might be a misalignment between what people see the purpose of school as being? where students are coming to school to be kids and to develop and to learn who they are. Um, I noticed when I was reading your book that that was kind of an undercurrent throughout it, but it sounds like you're describing also that parents have a <laughs> almost an ulterior motive behind why their students are going to school, which is to get into a competitive university and to get a good job. So is there is there a tension between these two? There's no question there's a tension about those two things. I think historically education has been has been 
has had multiple reasons for being. Uh, um, it's to socialize kids in their environments. It's to uh, educate them about the world in which they live and maybe the world in which they might someday contribute. Um, it's to make them better citizens of the world. It's to socialize their, their development and be part of their development, to share as their parents are raising them. Uh, children have lives certainly outside the home, and school gives kids an opportunity to experience life uh, among their peers and to develop friendships and to do all kinds of things that are enhancing their overall developmental trajectories. Um, what's evolved, though, over time uh, is because of these pressured environments, because of the degrees to which parents are increasingly anxious about their children's futures, um, the pressure on students to be in competitive school environments from very, very, very early ages, sometimes as early as daycare, um, that children are in these, um, parents are competing with each other to get their kids into into just the right daycare, into just the right preschool, into just the right elementary school, and so on, so they can get into just the right colleges, so they can get just the right job, and be okay, as if life were simply that linear. It's not, but, but those linear uh, accomplishments along the way provide a kind of temporary relief for parents who are anxious about their children's futures. Where do you think that anxiety is coming from? It's from the fear of the future and the fear of missing out, the fear of the student not, uh, not having a, a healthy and, and rich adulthood? It's multifaceted, as I can understand it. I wish I could pinpoint a specific uh, place, but if I had to identify um, one primary culprit, I think it's coming from the economy. Uh, I think that um, I've, I've read a lot about how the economy affects these kinds of cultured, uh, and these kinds of competitive conditions. Um, uh, there, there's one source that refers to the fact that where there are greater um, income inequality ratios, meaning there are fewer people at the very top who have most of the money and most of the resources, there becomes an increasingly kind of winner-takes-all mentality that they have it and they want to maintain it and they want to continue to give it to their children uh, for the future. So they're willing to do just about anything to maintain uh, the status and the wealth and the, um, and the, the cultural uh, experience that they have. Um, and what that means is fewer and fewer people at the top are competing with each other to try to maintain those kinds of uh, status positions. Mm. So anxiety to maintain status position is one of the main... I'd say it's one of them. It's, it's certainly not the only thing, mm. um, but there are certainly cultural um, factors that play a role as well. But ultimately, I think it comes down to, um, if you kind of narrowed it down, it's coming down to the fact that in these ultra-competitive environments, most of which are um, high-tuition uh, schools, uh, parents are paying tremendous amounts of money to get their kids into these schools so that these schools will play their role in getting their kids into selective colleges uh, so they can get good jobs, and um, it just goes on and on and on. But I think it's primarily coming from a possession, a place of parents' um, uh, anxiety about their children's future. Wow, thank you. Let's talk a little bit about another question that we have from our uh, audience. Bryson at Eunice Hanoi has a question for us. 
In my experience as a teacher and tech integrator, I have noticed an uptick in students who engage in multiple social platforms and create multiple aliases in order to hide their identities. In your research, uh, have you come across any evidence that would suggest that multiple aliases and increased anonymity could be brought on by the level of anxiety students are facing in schools? Thank you. You know, um, I don't have an extensive amount of research uh, to point to in this, but I'm well aware of the fact that more and more kids are creating aliases or in other ways concealing their true identity on social media. I think, you know, to a large degree because they've gotten the message loud and clear that as they progress through their school lives, ultimately into applying for work once they're out of school, whether that's out of high school or out of college, they recognize that potential employers are going to be able to look all over social media and find out more about who these kids are and, quite frankly, who they were when they were younger adolescents and perhaps uh, students are now trying to conceal that information so that they're not so easily discovered and therefore left out of potential job situations down the road. Having said that, I also think that part of this question has to do with the fact that more and more students, not just more and more, but it seems incredibly prevalent that adolescents around the world um, are turning to social media for all kinds of reasons. Uh, it's, it's the air they've been breathing since they were born. It's the water they swim in, if you will. Um, this is who they are. Um, they are learning to, to um, socialize with each other more online than in person. Um, and I think that kind of tendency does ultimately tend to lead to increased stressors down the road because quite frankly the world expects individuals to be able to interact interpersonally with one another um, in job situations, um, in family situations, um, and when we have generation of students who are so dependent on looking at their phones for answers to just about everything, um, they have missed out on the opportunity over time to learn to interact with each other uh, in real interpersonal ways um, and to resolve conflict with each, other, with each other in real personal ways. And over time, those kinds of, that lacking in those kinds of skills is going to contribute to their experience of stress when an anxiety and perhaps any number of other manifestations of those problems once they are in, in real human situations where conflict resolution and talking with each other in person about really difficult things um, is going to be required and they're going to be at a loss. Hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is that students today are living in this sort of online world and perhaps not necessarily understanding how to interact with one another in face-to-face -face scenarios. That's my perception. Um, I can't say that that's what everybody is doing, uh, but it's been my perception, having worked with so many teenagers for such a long time, that that's more and more uh, the case that I see. Mm. In Bryson's question, there was this interesting um, sort of element to it where he was talking about students creating multiple social media accounts. And I had a chance to discuss this a little bit with him ahead of time. He was telling me that he had noticed certain situations where students might have been bullying each other and one one person might have created five Instagram accounts and used those to log in 
uh, one by one and send messages to one specific person targeting that other person, making it seem like, you know, five people were sending this negative message, like you're no good. And that really drove that, that person's uh, mental state downward. Yes. And I think Bryson was saying that he had noticed that this was starting to become a tactic that students were using mm. to, to bully one another. Mm. And that the bullying is kind of becoming more sophisticated, perhaps, in a, in a certain sense, that students are using these platforms in ways we perhaps never would have even imagined. And mm. that was uh, something quite incredible that uh, had come It is incredible. Um, I've certainly been well aware of the concept of cyberbullying and and this kind of uh, work, but I've I've never heard of this kind of creative meanness um, uh, by which someone can, with one, you know, one person can create five essentially aliases online as if a group of people were trying to bully one person at one time. Um, I haven't heard that much about that, but it doesn't surprise me because um, students are are ever more creative in their use of social media than we adults um, can ever realize. Hmm. In your experience, what causes a student to want to bully another, be it online or in face-to-face scenarios? Is there pressure begets pressure, bullying begets bullying? You know, I guess the way I would kind of look at it is that um, from my own earlier uh, studies and experience of working with children who have been abused by their parents or by teachers or by other adults, uh, trusted adults, uh, quite frequently the people who do the abusing are themselves victims of abuse from earlier times in their own lives. Um, and one of the ways that we, one of the terms that professional psychology over time has used to identify that is to identify with the aggressor. Um, that there are plenty of people who suffer abuse, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and who never become abusers. They find ways to deal with it and to move on in productive ways, in meaningful ways in their lives. But some people don't do that, and some people find themselves so vulnerable that their only way for them to feel a sense of, of mastery or a sense of control or a sense of somehow being victorious over their own abuser is to become an abuser themselves um, and therefore identifying with the aggressor and achieving a kind of, um, it's misled, but achieving a sense of control and mastery um, once and for all. Mm. Thank you for that. Sure. So when we start to to hear all of this this great information, I think a lot of our, our listeners are probably wondering what's next and what do we do with this? Um, how can we, how can we solve these problems in our own schools? Every school I've gone to over the last several years has asked me a version of that same question: What do we do now? Once they acknowledge and realize the degree to which they, the adults in those schools, and they, the parents in those schools, are part of the problem and want to be part of the solution as well. That's good news that they want to be part of the solution. What's unfortunate is that when I give them the answer that they don't want to hear, they're less likely to become part of the solution right away. In the book, I, I reference another author, uh, Ron Heifetz is his name, and he's clearly differentiated in a book called Leadership Without Easy Answers. Um, he, differentiates the, he differentiates between what he refers to as technical versus adaptive challenges or technical versus adaptive problems. Technical problems are those problems for which 
the answers already exist. And all we need to do ultimately is um, is hire the right technician, if you will, to solve our problem. It could be as basic as we have a, an electrical problem in our home. That's a technical problem. And what do we need to do? We hire an electrician who comes in and fixes it. Um, analogy that I frequently use is if anyone needs surgery for anything. It's certainly not a trivial problem. Um, but what we do is we hire essentially a technician, a surgeon, who's highly skilled in his or her field and fixes the problem by operating on us and taking care of the problem. We know uh, what to do in situations like that. We hire technical people to solve technical problems. Adaptive problems are problems for which the answers don't exist yet. And what they require, literally, is adaptation. That means growth. That means development in terms of cognitive, emotional, interpersonal, and intrapersonal uh, dimensions of our lives, areas where we've not been yet. These are uh, territories yet uncharted in our own psychological and emotional uh, and professional lives. In order for us to solve adaptive problems, we have to think together, work together as adults to together make tests of our assumptions, to, to work through these kinds of challenges, and to try to find solutions on our own. Um, most parents and faculty members don't want to hear that because it requires what they think is more work. What they'd prefer is to hire a technician to come in and fix the problem. But those technicians don't exist when we're asking about trying to change cultures, change the way we operate in schools, so that we keep children's health and well-being at the center of what we do. Um, so I think it's about that. Mm. So there's no easy fix. There's just no easy fix. And it takes, it takes tests. It takes, uh, go ahead. <laughs> it takes tests. It takes years. It takes ongoing practice. It takes collaboration. It takes cooperation. It takes new learning. It means that adults need to um, connect with each other and think together and struggle together and generate uh, new ways of operating testing assumptions that they have previously. You know, uh, one of the assumptions that people have had w that I've talked about in the book is that if we, if, we do, if we don't assign all that homework or if we don't obsess on the college process, then our school will be seen as having lost its standards or our kids won't get into colleges. There are plenty of examples of schools that have actually tested that assumption, have done things that are more developmentally appropriate for the kids in their school, and guess what? Those kids are still getting into good colleges, um, and their schools haven't closed. But the assumptions about those things are part of what keep the adults from actually taking steps and testing those assumptions to see if, in fact, their assumptions are correct. But if they take tests, or if they make tests and check things out and explore, they very often find out that their assumptions are false. And once they can determine that, they, they're literally expanding the way they know the situation itself. They are adapting. They are changing the way they know their problems. They're literally changing their minds. They're growing, they're developing, and they're adapting. And that's what adaptive uh, solutions actually look like. But they're slow and tedious, sometimes messy, um, and they take a long time. Dr. David Gleason, thank you very much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. See you all next time on the EdTech Lens.